Hi everyone and welcome to the Power Podcast. I'm James Prescott, your host. Welcome to the show. I'm absolutely delighted to welcome a, a new guest to the show today. Um, yeah, welcome Irene Cho. Hello, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be joining you today. Yeah, I am. Yes, I've wanted you to come on. I've wanted to have you on for quite a while. Uh, and um, I'm excited to talk to you. Yeah. Coming us all the way from uh, the west coast of America. Um, yeah, exciting. Um, yes, I get to I get to come visit you from right next to the beach um, in Venice or near Venice. I'm technically in what they call Silicon Beach, which is via Vista, like Google, YouTube, Yahoo, all of those. They have little mini campuses where I live, but it's right next to Venice for any of you who watch. NCIS Los Angeles, or if you know Arnold Schwarzenegger, he started his weightlifting uh, career in Venice Beach with the Muscle Beach. That's all in that location. So I'm enjoying being here. I've been here for two years now, and it's nice because I can take little afternoon morning strolls right next to the marina um, and enjoy the ocean breeze. So that's, that's quite lovely. Yeah. Yeah, it sounds really nice. I love the West Coast of America. No complaints. No complaints for me about that. <laughs> <laughs> and you do a lot of. You've done. You've got a, done a lot of work in in nonprofits and um, done a lot of. Uh, you t- you talk about uh, you're kind of an expert on race, diversity, and inclusion, and you've got a website where you do a bit of writing and stuff as well. So um, yeah, it's uh, really great. Um, really great stuff. So. Tell us a bit about, tell us a bit of your story. Yeah, um, so I am Korean-American. Um, my parents immigrated to the U.S. Um, in their mid-20s, um, back in the 70s. I'm totally dating myself now. But, <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> um, but they came and then had me. So I am U.S. born, um, born in Los Angeles, then moved to the East Coast. So I grew up really during my formative years um, on the East Coast in New York and Philly. So I've technically been in Los Angeles for longest, but um, consider myself to be an East Coast girl in all respects. Um, there's outside of living now by the beach in all honesty I kind of loathe Los Angeles because I love the four seasons um, and I miss in particular autumn and winter Um, and so you know I've been griping I've been here for 25 years and I feel like only the last two years living by the beach I've been like okay this is this is a bad type of deal but um, so that's a bit of you know my ethnic uh, background and I really was you know I come from a Christian background I you know ended I came to believe in Jesus um, when I was in elementary school but then really committed my life to being a Christian and dedicated like deep you know in in serving the church and serving Jesus um, in high school but in, in actuality, I wanted to be a journalist. I wanted to be the next Connie Chung and, you know, make mm. it on the big news screen and live in a penthouse in New York City. Um, that was my kind of high school 
glamour, idealized, you know, goal in life. Um, mm. And God had a very different plan. Um, and I received what we call a calling. Um, I very, I had a very strong conviction, um, a very spiritual encounter, an experience um, by which I knew that I had to um, serve in any capacity that I wanted to, and then really serve youth kids. Um, and so my field and focus has been serving um, the church and serving youth kids from junior high onward. Um, mm-hmm. I don't really do elementary. <laughs> That's always <laughs> just a joke. I love babies, like infants. I can deal with that. And then once you turn like five and you start asking all of those why questions, I'm like, oh, please go play with mommy and <laughs> and then bring them back over to me when they hit puberty because I love them from 12 years and older. Um, <laughs> I know a lot of people think that I've been sane, um, but I, I love, in particular, middle school um you know, from the age of 11, 12 to 14, it's just such a, for me, precious time period when you're so insecure, you're, you're coming out of your concrete thought and starting to enter into abstract concepts. And, and I love challenging, you know, that age group to really begin to start asking themselves better questions, you know, have deeper thoughts, make make amazing connections it's just fun to see the light bulb starting to develop and, and go off and seeing their brains work and, and making these adult connections in their mind so i love it um for all of their antsiness and insanity and craziness and energy um so i worked in the church and nonprofit world um in the church and i moved into nonprofit but still focused predominantly on youth for the last 25 years um and in actuality, it's really interesting that I've been, you know, increasingly more um, recommended or looked to as the expert on diversity and race because I still feel like I'm a newbie, you know, and I've been doing this for the last four years, really starting to lean into um, my awareness and my knowledge. Um, and really speaking up on behalf of, you know, race issues um, over the last four years. Um, and, and I think what's really interesting is my background in my vocation has predominantly been um, in Korean immigrant church settings um, and then moving into urban, um, urban context. And so a lot of my a lot of the things that I've been dissecting and dealing with and unpacking has been um, my femininity and my womanness in leadership. Um, and so the gender identity element of it, what does it mean being a woman, you know, working in a, in a context and an environment and location that is very, very majority heavily male-led, right? Um, in particular, mm-hmm. white male-led, but they're male-led. Um, you know, and so from the age of 17 until maybe 20, even 35, I would say, um, it was very much having to fight for my rights, my validity, and my worth and value um, as a woman in leadership. Um, and so I have a friend who, um, she's black, and she and I were having a discussion about leadership and as a black woman, she said, coming into a white institution in the last 10 years, she has 
really been dealing with what it means to be a woman in leadership because of whole childhood growing up all the way through post-grad school has been about what does it mean to be black in leadership. And I said, oh my gosh, that's the polar opposite of my journey. My journey has been very much about who I am as a woman, and now I'm really diving into the elements of what does it mean that I'm Korean, what does it mean that I am not white, um, what does it mean that I'm not black or brown or native, um, indigenous, you know, like all these elements uh, that, that are so wonderful and complex and complicated in um, the race conversation. I'm, I'm now dealing with it. So it's, it's very interesting that I know many people look to me because I'm so vocal about race issues. Um, but I keep also sharing, and my challenge in particular to white people is, I'm on this journey with you. You know, I've mm. not really understood or, right, I've not really understood what it meant that I'm Asian American. What does it mean that I'm Korean American? Because I've been so focused on what does it mean that I'm a woman. Um, and yet I've realized now how much I've missed by not understanding the intersectionality of both my womanness and my Koreanness and my Asianness and you know all the things that hmm. that encompass and of who I am and what I embody, what I my who my identity is. Um, so I, I always challenge people, and I'm I'm always so very honest about my journey and process from going from a very conservative evangelical viewpoint to really opening all the boxes, opening all the gates, you know, and having no area that is taboo and untouchable to examine and, you know, really reflect and, and dissect and analyze uh, and, and break down, you know, and, and dismantle and tear down and let's rebuild this back up because I feel that so much of who I am is so much more fulfilled and enriched by doing that um, and I know that is really scary for a lot of people um, but I just continue to encourage like come to this side I know it looks like the dark side but really like once you pass the dark little hole that you perceive there's so much light and, <laughs> and awareness on the other side so yeah. that's yeah a little bit of, of my story so how is I mean it looks like you've been on a faith journey like a lot of people have, from kind of conservative evangelicalism, whatever, to something very different. And what did what did that journey look like? What was that? What was the the experience of that like? It's great um, question. Also very complicated, <laughs> as, as so much as so much of life is, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, so, I grew up, I actually grew up Pentecostal, so I grew up in the Assembly of God um, denomination, kind of, uh, you know, I wasn't, like, my family wasn't very devoted to a certain particular denomination, but the school and practice was very uh, Pentecostal, um, very experiential, um, a lot of worship, a lot of prayer, uh, you know, all these different things. So I did not grow up with the kind of, uh, you know, type of faith that is very Lutheran or Anglican, Catholic, you know, very, very, uh, you know, a lot of the the rituals and, and all of those things, which I'm so, 
I'm so respectful of, but it's, that's an element that is very foreign to me uh, and very uh, unfamiliar in that sense. Um, and so I feel like that's such an important part of my journey and my interaction that I have with God um, and my, my own faith, you know, what colors of what that looks like. Yeah. Um, and then from there, you know, growing up in that kind of environment, I then went to a very evangelical school. Um, it's called Biola. Um, very different than what it looks like now. Biola has become very conservative. I mean, it was always conservative, but it's, it's become very conservative and very um, right uh, in the sense of a, a good majority, I believe, faculty and, and people are... Um, very much Trump supporting um, and, and all of those things. And so it wasn't like that when I went, but it was still conservative. It was heavily Republican, you know, it was during the 90s. Um, and and so in that sense, there was very much an anti-Pentecostal sentiment, um, in particular when I went to college. Uh, I don't know if many of you would know, but there were there was this whole movement happening in the church uh, against charismatic um, school of thought. Uh, and so Vineyard was on the rise, you know, all these things. And so there was a, a push against that kind of experiential uh, type of faith um, with John MacArthur, Hank Hanegraaff, you know, all these books were getting published about how charismatic gifts are from the devil, pretty much. <laughs> like, yeah. um, you know, yeah. yeah. So, I, I know, you know, we're dealing with so many other things, but that was the hot ticket topic, you know, that we were talking about all the time uh, back in the early 90s, which was really core-taking for me, having grown up in that experience, you know, and, and all of that. And so I, it was very interesting of my faith development because I, through my, my experience, my college and my grad school experience, I felt like I developed a very solid foundational theological um, education and um, a lot of great techniques by my hermeneutical, exegetical, you know, like all of the things where we dive into the languages, the original languages. I still appreciate my professors and how um, original context was so, so deeply ingrained in us. Um, and so for me, this is why when I ended up starting to meet white people and white Christians who were like, so adamant, staunchly adamant about how white Jesus was, I I could not understand that. Like, even in my conservative school, the concept that Jesus was European and white, like, and it was a very interesting time because we did actually have a gigantic mural on campus with a picture of this 30-foot Jesus who very much looked like a European Jesus. And yet in my classes that I took, um, you know, my master's classes and in my all my Bible classes, that was never an issue. Like, Jesus was Jewish. Jesus was Middle Eastern. Jesus was uh, brown. Of You know, like, there was there was no question of that. Um, and so it was, it was very interesting, I think, in that journey, like, trying to even unpack what all of that means. Um, as you know, you're you're really starting to dive into issues of race um, and ethnicity and culture um, and, and diversity and all these things. So I think you know I I feel 
really fortunate, you know, we could say blessed, fortunate, whatever, to have been able to experience a variety of schools of thought. And I think that probably also is part of why I'm more open to the fact that, you know, what does it mean to dismantle and rebuild up your perceptions of what you've been raised to believe and how those aren't written, shouldn't be and aren't written in stone, that um, it, there is a wide variety of, of our views of God, of who God is, um, all of these things that I never, I never feel altered for, I think, because of the fact that my schooling and upbringing just didn't allow that. You know, I mm. was continually put into situations where I feel I would be told that this is the altar by which only God could be worshipped, and then something would come tearing it down, and, you know, then it, it became an exercise of, okay, what then, how, how can God continually increase in, in magnanimous, you know, all of his magnanimous and he, she, they, you know, ways of, of which we can perceive who God is, um, and be, and God being able to contain that and hold that and not, and our faith in that to not be threatened by the fact that we all come to the table with different stories and different perspectives and different views and angles by which we interact with God and how God interacts with us. Um, and so, yeah, that's a bit kind of, of how is where I'm at now. Yeah, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? When when you start making that journey, because it almost becomes like a snowball effect. Like once you started. There's almost, if you're really growing, there's no end point. There's no destination. It's just, you keep growing, you keep asking more questions, and you keep learning, and you keep asking more questions, and it, and then more things come up, and it just, yeah, yeah, things just open out, and it's an ongoing journey. I know, and I think, I think, so I also went through a faith crisis. Um, so my life has been very difficult. Um, I am a race survivor. I was raised by my senior pastor um, when I was, technically I was 18, so I was over the age um, of, of, you know, whatever, all of these things, all the lovely laws that mm. protected users. Um, mm. <laughs> so, you know, I had that, you know, my father was an alcoholic, um, and, and more recently in the last 10 years I've discovered, you know, he was also a drug user. Um, he's very absent. He was a good man, you know. He, he never beat us. He never did any of these things. But he was very negligent and very not available. Um, so, you know, having those daddy issues, um, and then just continuous struggle of, you know, again, all of the pushback of this is my conviction of where I need to be serving, and the constant berating, um, dealing with men. It's just, it was so, so exhausting. Um, and I ended up, <laughs> I ended up in my last church, you know, doing really, really great stuff with the kids, um, seeing lives being changed, um, so, so deeply convicted in, in what it meant to preach the gospel um, in a really transformational, authentic 
real way with kids by not sugarcoating anything and having real conversations with them, being a better listener, asking better questions of them. Just in that way, um, I saw such a shift in my own ministry and impact of allowing kids to grow in their in, you know, in their own way um, with God, and yet because of that, um, the church, and in particular my supervisor, who, you know, did not believe women should be ordained, didn't believe women should be in ministry, who would argue all the time with all the females on staff. Um, one time he argued, you know, because women have menstrual cycles, that's another valid reason why women shouldn't get ordained. Um, you know, I got fired from that job, um, mm. and it was like, it was like the straw that broke the camel's back, and I spiraled, spiraled into a safe crisis. Um, and like you said, once you start really going down the rabbit hole of, is this fake? Is this propaganda? Is God real? And I, for a few years, had this very, very difficult struggle falling down the rabbit hole with knowledge from my head of all that I've learned, all that I've been taught, and in my heart, the anger and the pain and, like, just being done with everything, right? Um, and I can only chalk it up to some elements of the Holy Spirit, you know, holding on with a very, very, very fine thread where I didn't take that last final step off the cliff and say, I'm going to declare myself an atheist or an agnostic and God is no longer, there is nothing, you know? Um, and I slowly kind of walked away from the edge of the cliff for, for the silent, small, quiet voice that was saying, but what if, just what if God is real? What if this this is propaganda, you know. Are you willing to throw it all away for that potential what if? Um, and I I think the journey back took even longer than the rabbit hole journey because mm. of the shame, because of the healing needed, because of the repair, all of that. Um, and I will say even at the end, I don't know if I fully would have come back wholeheartedly into my faith and my commitment to God had I not had the most profound spiritual experience I'd ever had. It was otherworldly. Um, mm. It was my Damascus Paul experience on the road to Damascus. Um, and I that has become my center point by which, you know, I think there is some entity that is so much greater than we are. Whether you believe that to be an energy in the universe, whether you believe that and call that God and Jesus, you know, there is something that was so revealing of how small we are in the speck of this entire cosmos. Um, it was seriously other-dimensional, otherworldly. Um, and I think the understanding and perspective that we are a small blip on this thing that connects us all together from the furthest millennia away, you know, Adam to where we are now, um, there is a connection that makes this all 
you know, a gigantic ball of one gigantic picture together. Um, I, it was, it it was so profound. Um, and so I think that really solidified, okay, I can never, ever say that there's not something greater than us, um, that is at hand. Um, and I have stayed committed to my faith in Jesus because of the theology I believe, the sacrifice I believe Jesus has made, um, you know, in the story within Christianity. Um, but I, I also want to encourage everyone, you know, whatever your faith journey is, I, there's something, there's something that really ties us all together um, for whatever you believe that is. We're not here struggling and fiddling around and thinking, this land that we're trying to claim as our own, this company that we're trying to establish as our legacy, like, it's so tiny, it's so small, it's so minuscule, and it's so beautiful because whatever entity, which I believe is God, um, considers it to be beautiful and valuable, just as a, we look at five-year-olds building those little Lego kingdoms, and we, we look and we think it's adorable and we think it's beautiful, um, and in that same way, this, this entity that is so beyond our capacity of who we are um, is looking upon us adoringly um, and lovingly and wanting us to get our shit together. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) No, very well put. Very well put. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, there's so much wrong. I mean, the yeah, I mean, yeah. As a, I mean, as a white person, one thing I didn't realise until probably the last year or so, probably was the system. Like it just goes way beyond just evangelical church or evangelical Christianity. It's it's the whole system of that we live in. It's the you know it's it's kind of capitalism and and uh, systemic racism and patriarchy and uh, all of that is tied together uh, mm-hmm. and Absolutely. the church has been part of that you know a lot of mm-hmm. the church has been part of that uh, mm-hmm. and that's not a very comfortable thing you know I mean I grew up in the church as well I you know I, I've been going to church since I was pretty much born you know uh, and so yeah, I mean, it's, it's not an easy thing to hear, but it's absolutely necessary, isn't it? I mean, it's we need to... This is what it means by getting our shit together. You know, it's yeah. starting to, to face this stuff and name it and do that work of, of changing things. Yes. And, and really figuring out and examining and analysing what does it mean that we're trying... Like, who is trying to gain power? Because it always comes down to power, right? Mm. It always comes down to control. Um, and, and who is trying to establish that narrative? I think, you know, in a lot of our diversity and racial dialogue, we talk about um, the element of Westernism, in particular how Westernism has amplified and elevated this ideal of um, ideology of individualism, right? And how then it becomes this pathway by which you as an individual, I as an individual, it's about my single story. And and therefore, 
it's so you know, I bring up my spiritual journey in that in that element, that sense of we're all connected because, you know, we have for so far too long gone down this pathway and built these systems by which individualism is key and central, right? Like I build my legacy, I'm the most important, like what I am doing determines my validity and my worth. And that is so against everything by which it is written in scripture, right? It's not about the individual. It's it's this greater message of, you know, David is called, yes, as an individual, but for the greater impact of his entire community, of the entire world, right? Like, we continually forget. We, we share the story of the Israelites, and we preach about it, and yet we, we never continually remember the element that God calls the small Israelites because of the greater purpose by which to show the world who God is, right? And and even in the midst of us doing that, we have twisted it and and violated it um, in a sense that it becomes then about control. It becomes about, well, then we need to go, we need to enter into these other nations and conquer them and control them and force them and proselytize them and bully them into believing what we believe. But there's nowhere in Scripture that actually talks about that, right? Like, Hmm. the element of love, the element of sharing your light, the element of living out the way that God says is the best way to live, the healthiest way to live, the most communal way to live, is to show the world goodness, is to show the world love, not go and, like, conquer nations in the name of Jesus and then, like, force people to erase their cultures in the name of Jesus and become Western. <laughs> we, again, to pardon my language, like, basically violated that and fucked that whole thing up <laughs> and like made it and made it our agenda for from this actual message by which it's it's humility it's philippians too it's it's giving my right up you know to show you what sacrifice means to show you what community means to show you what love means on all these things and we just we completely i don't know Really, if we look at church history, if the church has ever gotten that right, um, it's an ever battle, I think, that we read scripture. It's repeated. It's a repeated message over and over again because humans. Oh, the humans, right? We, we just, this is what we do. And we continually, you know, I, I, I know men get a bad rap. I don't know. I say, let's give it a go and let's see if women can do it better. <laughs> not be controlling and territorial and conquering and, and all of these things that are predominantly led by testosterone, but um, you know, it's not as if women don't have our fault. You know, the, the the origination story for whatever you believe as being literal or fictional or you know um, a poem or you know stories to tell us the the nature that is human. Women aren't you know much. We're not much more innocent in that origination story of humankind. <laughs> yeah, that's right. And, and the weird thing is, the more I see the folly of empire, as it were, the more yeah. I understand Jesus uh, and what he was really about, 
I see so many metaphors of um, America in particular, you know, evangelical church um, and the Roman Empire and yeah. Jesus as, as a symbol of oppression, a symbol of rising up against oppression and oppressive systems and um, toxic religion who uh, exploit people for profit <laughs> uh, right and make money on holy ground uh, you know and and I see I see fundamentalist people on both sides of the theological spectrum uh, as you know one group that, and they both both sides killed Jesus you know Jesus was killed by the Romans and his own people yeah. uh, and it's when you see it you can't unsee it like anything you know um, but yeah. and it's and it's just like okay right I, I need to it, this is what he meant by the narrow path it's really a narrow yeah. path like yeah. to follow Jesus uh, and but actually I kind of see this in a whole new way which I really love so I mean has that been your experience Yes. And I think so much, you know, it's so, it's so phenomenal to repeat reading and seeing how, you know, the church for so long has tried to unpoliticize um, their faith by saying it's disconnected from the world, they're not in that sense, right? Um, well, we're going to do faith things over here and then we're going to do worldly things over here um, and yet that's a whole lie right because everything is political there's when you're talking about power there's no way to remove politics out of anything and so even in the narration that we talk about now unpacking like what does it mean that everything has been western and white in the formation of, of evangelicalism in the US um the church in England, you know, I mean, how much of that was so much about politics. And, and we, we have made and this, this Jesus and we've made this faith, this Christian faith, so generic, and yet it's not generic. It's generic in the sense that somebody's still owning that generic brand. Somebody's still making a profit off that generic brand even if it's not a name brand, right? <laughs> so we call it generic type of faith and not political, but somebody is banking on that, and that somebody has been white people in the U.S. in particular, um, and white people in, in England in, in the history of, of being the previous world empire. Um, yeah. And, you know, we see, when we actually dive in, um, Otis Moss III gave an amazing sermon um, at the Christian Community Development Association. He's talking about how Jesus, you know, we try to make him not political. And yet, when we look, Barabbas, who was chosen to be let go, to be freed, and not Jesus, was a extremist, political um, instigator. He was, you know, a leader that caused the chaos. And the people chose a political leader over Jesus. It was a very political debate on whether Jesus was trying to uproot and, and rebel against the government or Barabbas. Like, it was not a 
just simple two two random guys, you know, who they're pitting against each other. Hughes was very much in the middle of a debate on whether or not he was violating government um, authority. And so for us to say, oh, no, Jesus isn't political, is bullshit. You know, mm-hmm. it's, this, it's this, again, narrative that we're trying to water down something that God very much is aware. Um, and, and I know that some American churches, even today, you know, try to say, Jesus said, give unto Caesars what is Caesars. And honestly, I it's because empires will always exist. And that's why we see it all throughout the Old Testament. We see, you know, like the idea that we will have this, ever have these spaces of human communities and living without government, without an empire, is naive, is completely ignorant. And I don't think the Bible is actually telling us how to overthrow empire. And that's the concept, is Jesus is saying, Caesar will be there. Whatever image Caesar is, whether it's the Babylonian Empire, whether it's the Roman Empire, the Greek Empire, the English Empire, the American Empire, empire is going to be. It's, it's the, the, the concept that I feel like, you know, Scripture teaches us is how we, in the midst of empire being there, we, we create a balance from that, you know, we continue to push from grassroots that there is more to this world, there is more to this life, there is a greater ideology than just following what empire is saying is the standard. Um, and, and that would change with each empire. And, and that's why I don't think that God, you know, again, all these things are getting dismantled right now with statues in the U.S. being torn down and, you know, all the history is coming up. We're finding out, I just found out four days ago, Mount Rushmore, famous Mount Rushmore in, you know, North South Dakota, um, you know, was created by one of the head leaders of the Ku Klux Klan. Like, yeah, what? I just found that out too. <laughs> yeah. Uh, incredible, really, when you think about it. Yeah. Like, you know, I, these whole, the, the fact that we as Americans right now, our entire, and I say our because I grew up American. Like, I leave yeah. red, white, and blue, right? Like, I very much, I was the person, again, this is why I challenge white people. I was more devout as an American. I knew the star thing about it. I would reprimand white people at sporting events for not taking their hat off and putting your hand over their heart when they're just, and not knowing the words you start saying better. That's how American I am. <laughs> like, how American I was. And, and like, so the fact that these things are now getting dismantled and we're having to see, like, how much we have let the empire infiltrate into something that is supposed to be a faith designed to uproot that empire, and yet we've been in bed with the empire, it's the ever-long story of, you know, again, we'll say Daniel in, you know, the book of Daniel and his three friends of, like, what does it mean to stand up against the empire? Like, what does it mean that you 
say what is right, to, to fight against oppression and all these things. And it's not to say empire by itself is always going to be evil, but it's just inevitable that when something has full control, when something has full power, that there has to be a balance and, and an uprootedness of that um, or else we're doomed. Um, and and I, to say that the Bible is not political when everything about it is uprooting the evils that the empire is trying to establish um, is so, is so pathetic. It's a pathetic faith to think that your faith is just about you being a nicey, nice, good person and, you know, that's it. You know, I put my shopping cart away and I say thank you and you're welcome and then that makes me a good Christian. No, we, there there are powers that be. There are systems that we need to break down. There are oppressed people who we need to come along and, and fight with, you know. And, and Jesus is very much about what does justice look like. But it's not in the sense of revenge. It's not in the sense, like when I say overthrow the empire, it's not to say the anarchist. It's not to say, you know, that we, when I say burn it all down, and I say that a lot in my Twitter thread, <laughs> like burn it all down, it, Jesus shows us a way to do that, overthrowing in a third different way, and not this way by which we just rebel and fight against um, in a vengeful way, but we rebel and fight in a way that we're showing the world a better way, something beyond anger, something beyond hatred, something beyond violence, um, you know, that that goes beyond, that reflects the goodness of the human soul, you know. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And I think, I have a sense of hope um, in my best days, because um, my own journey has told me that things generally get worse, a lot worse, before they start getting better and before you start seeing transformation. Uh, and and I have a sense of that happening. You know that we're going to things are getting worse, but it's it's almost coming to the point where things will have to change. Uh, and uh, and that will be a painful journey, but it will be a. But eventually, we will find some freedom and transformation hopefully and justice hopefully yeah hopefully yes yes and it'll and the pendulum will swing the other way and there will be other issues in 10 15 years that yep. we will have to be dealing with but there's always going to be something and i it's it's being anchored in knowing that you know the poverty oppression empire power it's never going to leave you know, and racism as well. Like, in some form over another, again, human. This is what we do. And, and, and God calls us for the rest of us as we fight, as we heal, as we preach goodness. Um, and again, not generic kumbaya goodness, but real gotta get dirty and unpack and like get naked and like, you know, like, crack open everything that's so that goodness is so difficult it's so much hard work you know like you said there's a stripping down there is a dismantling there is a painful darkness that needs to happen in order 
for that goodness to start growing, right? Like, we, that's what I mean when I say we preach goodness. Um, it's that hope that we have to continually push as pendulums swing left and right and, and that, like, how do we continue to get that sweet spot of love and kindness and goodness um, and joyfulness and, and all those things that are that are in the world through connection with one another, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, well, this has been a really great conversation. I, yeah, I really... Good life stuff. Yeah, empire, <laughs> systemic racism, <laughs> evangelical Christianity, um, Jesus, yeah, nice <laughs> light stuff. <laughs> um, it's been so great to have you on the show, Irene. Um, and it's uh, you babble. <laughs> no, it's great. I love it. Fantastic. Really great. I loved what you said. Um, yeah. Um, and yeah, we'll have you try and get you back sometime as well. Uh, that'd be really great. Uh, yeah. I, I, I can talk about this stuff all, 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 all day long. It's so, it's so, <laughs> I love it. And I, you know, for me at the end of the day, like, I have so much hope for the church, and I'm so, I get so angry because I'm like, you're not, you're not getting it. <laughs> like, I, you know, people will think that I, I hate the church, but I'm like, no, if I didn't care, I wouldn't get so angry. <laughs> That's true. That's very true. Yeah. That's true. Yeah. And um, where can people find your work? Um, so, uh, if you go to my website, it's finding the in between um, with no dashes dot com. So finding the in between dot com. You can find me on all social media stuff with Irene M. As in Michelle Cho, C H O. Um, I always tell people that I'm the most raw and gritty and uh, angry on Twitter. I'm more insightful. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and a bit more, a bit more profound on Facebook, unpacking some of my anger, um, and then Instagram's usually more fun. And I'm just stalking and lurking on TikTok, so I'm not really. I don't have any. I don't do the dance videos. I'm not. I'm, I don't expose my dorkiness publicly like that to the world. <laughs> <laughs> oh, fantastic! Yeah. Well, thank you, and. Um, Thanks for listening, everybody. I hope this has been really encouraging for you as well. So take care, everybody. 